Hello and welcome to Focus, the Catholic Answers podcast for living, understanding, and defending your Catholic faith. I am Cy Kellett, your host, delighted to welcome Dr. David Anders, who you know from EWTN, called to communion with Dr. David Anders, which airs each day on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And uh, from time to time when I am listening, and I must say I am a listener and a fan of that show, it's just a wonderful uh, bit of radio. And from time to time I'm listening, and there seems to be a, some disagreement among Christians about the person of Paul, uh, the the author of a great deal of the New Testament, a very, very important person in the history of Christianity, and one that uh, there is some dispute about. So I thought we'd invite uh, Dr. David Anders here to talk about Paul. Dr. Anders, thanks for being with us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, all right, all this dispute about Paul, um, I, I want to start with the most obvious thing, uh, which I learned from uh, uh, Dr. Richard Dawkins. Paul is the inventor of Christianity. Is is that correct? Uh, so, you know, Paul didn't know that there was such a thing called Christianity. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, all right. So where does Paul fit in all of this? Because here's this extraordinary uh, figure, and, and as, as, as most people know, not a follower of Christ during his earthly ministry, as a matter of fact, an opponent of, of, uh, Christ and the, and the earliest church, uh, miraculously, uh, converted to the faith and then, uh, becomes... I, I suppose the only way to say it is the great theologian of the earliest church. Is, is that correct? Um, sure. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, I, I'd like to go back and explain my comment that Paul didn't know there was a thing called Christianity. Oh, okay, right? please do. Because from St. Paul's, Paul's point of view, he, he was interested in bringing to fruition the prophetic promise that the God of Israel would be worshipped throughout the nations. I mean, this was the messianic expectation. And he had come to believe that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who would occasion or bring about this, this long-anticipated Jewish expectation that the kingdom of God would come, the day of the Lord would arrive, and the nations would would accept the God of Israel. I mean, that you find that in the prophets. You find it in Isaiah. You find it in... Ezekiel and Jeremiah and, and all the rest of them. And uh, and Paul simply saw himself as the vehicle chosen by God, called in the way that, you know, say Jeremiah was called to be a herald yeah. uh, to announce this great salvation. He, he had absolutely no consciousness whatsoever at all that he might be or could ever be construed as being founding some new religion over and against and apart from Judaism. Yes. Wow. Uh, and okay, and, and so and so that that way of construing the issue, Paul as the founder of Christianity, is extremely anachronistic, and it presupposes that there is a thing in the world called Christianity, and that there's a thing in the world called Judaism, and that those categories are are conceptually clear, and and apparent to somebody like Paul, all of which is is just false, right? And uh, there's actually quite a lot of scholarship on just this question. Now, I'm going to give you a provocative title, all right? But don't don't take me too literally here. There is a, there's a new rising school of Jewish Pauline scholarship. This is these are Jew, Jews, not Christians, who study Paul from a Jewish point of view. There's a woman by the name of Pamela Eisenbaum who has a book entitled "Paul Was Not a Christian." Yeah. And and it it is in defense of this particular <laughs> thesis, right? That doesn't mean that 
Paul should somehow be alien to Christians today. I'm not saying that, right? But this idea that there is some kind of distinct religion called Christianity in the first century, and that Paul saw himself as leaving Judaism and joining another sect, is not at all accurate to his way of thinking. And getting into that can be some of the subject of our discussion about Paul's theological reflection, because you talked about him as the great theologian. Well, yeah. So he's. I suppose then Paul. He he, he uh, is is a, a Pharisee by uh, by his own account. That's correct, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So he's he's trained in a certain uh, way of uh, reading the scriptures, and 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 probably much more highly trained than than the the apostles, the the original twelve apostles are in that. And, and he brings that into his uh, way of explaining who Christ is and what Christ has done. Is, is all of that fair to say? Yes, but Paul ultimately comes to the position that the pharisaical exegesis of the Old Testament is wrong. And right. he makes the astonishing claim that without the Spirit of God, without the Spirit of Christ— that it is actually impossible to correctly understand the Old Testament. And he says that, you know, there is a spirit that comes from God, and then there's then there's the other one. And that the the rulers of this age, like, had they known the mind of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Uh, but that yeah. these things are made known to us only by the Spirit of Christ, but we have the mind of Christ. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So, yes, he was trained in rabbinic exegesis, and there are some hints of that in his in his letters, but he ultimately rejects rabbinic ex- exegesis uh, for uh, for a, a a radically new hermeneutic grounded in the messiahship of Jesus. And, but he doesn't hesitate to go to the synagogue to to share. This is this is primarily what he does. First of all, in his he goes to the synagogue in whatever city he comes to. And and it intends to 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 convince the the folks there that uh, this that we've been waiting for it, it's come upon us now. Yep. And and who listened to him in the synagogues? Who actually heard his appeal and accepted his message? Um, uh, Timothy. <laughs> By well, yeah, yeah. And who was Timothy? And who was Timothy? What was significant about Timothy? Was Timothy a Jew? I don't remember. I think maybe half was he half Jewish, or he was not a. Yeah, Jew? he had a. He had. He was an uncircumcised child of a Jewish mother and a pagan father. Yeah. Okay. And and so Paul later has him circumcised to avoid giving offense to the Jews. So the the point of that story is that the people who listened to Paul and responded to his to his message in the synagogues were by and large what we call God fearers. They were they were Gentiles who had associated themselves with the Jewish community and listened to the reading of the Torah, but had not accepted circumcision and the entire yoke of the law, the whole burden of the law. They had not taken on full Christian, excuse me, full Jewish identity by accepting the whole Mosaic Code. And so when Paul preached the message, you don't have to submit to circumcision in order to be counted members of the covenant people of Israel the God fears in the synagogue were like, "Woohoo! Sign me up, buddy!" Yes. You know, they were right. ready made for that message. He says, "Now, because of Jesus, you don't actually have to do that in order to be in order to be uh, heirs of Abraham and inheritors of the promise." 
Uh, one thing I meant to ask you, and I, and I, I didn't ask you to start this, but uh, I, I said he was not a follower of Jesus, and he, in fact, he was an opponent of of Jesus, uh, uh, even and and of the earliest church. Is any evidence that he ever, for example, heard Jesus preach himself? Yeah, I think that not. I think not. And Paul makes a distinction in his letters in First Corinthians between things that he had from the Lord, information that he had from the Lord and information that he came to as a person of prudent judgment. And and when he refers to the information that he had from the Lord, it seems to be that he is referring to uh, uh, oral traditions about Christ that he had learned from the Church. So, he, uh, he, you know, there, there were no written Gospels at the time of Paul's ministry. You know, the, the Gospels are actually written after Paul. Um, and so the only thing that he knew about Christ— was either from the oral tradition of the church that had instructed him, or by way of private revelation. Okay, all right. So now, to, to come into the controversies of our time, I mean, there are controversies about Paul in, in every direction, but primarily Paul is significant uh, at this time, at this era of Christianity, I would think, because of the great disagreement over salvation that comes into the church at, at the time of the Reformation, at the time of Martin Luther and uh, then the other reformers. And uh, the it, it, it's noticeable to a Catholic, or at least it seems to me as a Catholic, that in these Protestant and Catholic back and forths, the 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 texts of Paul are used by Protestants far more than the Gospels or any other letters. That that, in other words, that the the justification for Protestantism seems to be primarily, though not exclusively, but be primarily in Paul. Why is that? Well, it has to do with the history of the interpretation of Paul from Augustine to the 16th century. Okay. Now, uh, up until the fourth century. The early fathers cited Paul, they quoted Paul, <clears throat> they revered Paul, but they did not look to Paul's letter to the Romans or his letter to the Galatians and to his specific teaching about justification by faith rather than works of the law. They didn't look to those texts and passages uh, to frame their understanding of salvation, all right? And and uh, the, the, the Lutheran scholar, Christer Stendhal, makes this observation. He says, up to the time of Augustine, the Church was by and large under the impression that Paul dealt with those issues with which he actually dealt, namely, what happens to the law, that is, the Torah, the law of Moses, when the Messiah has come, and what are the ramifications of the Messiah's arrival for the relation between Jews and Gentiles. In other words, when Paul writes about the law and grace and faith in Romans and Galatians, his primary interest is, what does this have to do with the inclusion of all these God-fearers, with all these Gentiles into the people of God? It was not a general question about the nature of salvation. It was a specific question about whether the Mosaic Code should be imposed on this particular demographic. And once that question got settled—I mean, the Council of Jerusalem settled it in the first century, and by the second century, you know, Catholicism is a largely Gentile religion— the question of the relevance of the law to Christian life 
was pretty much a done deal. Like nobody considered that anymore. It had already been settled. It had already been concluded. And so these texts of St. Paul about the law and grace, like basically ceased to be relevant in Christian life. That was the perception. And the aspects of Paul that predominated in patristic exegesis was rather um, 1 Corinthians 2, that I already mentioned to you, for 2 Corinthians 3, which is the the, uh, the letter kills and the Spirit gives life, and Origen, the great Alexandrian, saw in this the principle of allegorical exegesis. Paul's teaching in Corinthians about Christ as the second Adam uh, was picked up by Irenaeus uh, and framed his understanding of salvation. Irenaeus said that what we lost in Adam, we regain in Christ, namely to be in the likeness and image of God. So there are Pauline themes in patristic literature, but not the law and grace. That had been kind of set aside as, well, we've been there, done that, we've answered that question. What happens with Augustine, who's writing in, in the late 4th and early 5th centuries, is Augustine is really the first theologian in the Catholic tradition to go back and look at the letter of Romans and the letter to the Galatians and the teaching on justification by faith and to view them not simply as a local question about Gentile converts and the Jewish law, but a global question about you know as a as a as a picture of our salvation of everyone's salvation uh, as we are reconciled to God. And so Augustine introduces a reading of Paul whereby justification becomes the primary metaphor for understanding how we relate to God. And until until Augustine, that was not the case. Now Augustine's conclusion is that for Paul and for Christians, uh, the way we're reconciled to God is through faith. God pours his love into our heart and changes us and makes us morally righteous. He, he literally makes us to be just. And the Latin word justificare means to make just. And so that's the way the church read St. Paul from Augustine all the way up to Martin Luther. What Luther introduced was a radical idea, a novel idea, that no one had ever heard of before, which is that God makes the believer to be just, not by infusing Christ's righteousness, not by changing his character, but rather by imputing the righteousness of Jesus. So for Luther, God would look at a sinful person and say, I'll just treat you as if you were righteous, but for Jesus's sake. That's called imputed righteousness. And that's what Luther, that's what Luther invents. Now, Luther thinks that he finds that teaching in St. Paul, but he only does so by radically misreading this teaching about the relationship of grace and the law. Wow, what an extraordinary story. So the, the I, I guess the, 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 the main thing, though, then is to ask you what it was that Paul was doing, because you gave a general description of it. This is uh, Paul wrestling with a local problem local both in time and space um that that gets resolved but so when when paul says that we're justified justified by faith and not by works of the law what is he actually talking about yeah so he's saying that jew and gentile alike uh become uh, members of christ's family god's family abraham's descendants not in virtue of keeping the Mosaic Code, circumcision and the dietary laws and the new moons and the Sabbaths, but in virtue of their faith in Christ. That's what makes them members of God's family. And the fruit of that, the gift of that faith, is the outpouring of God's Spirit. I mean, this is cr the doctrine of the Spirit's critical for Paul, and with it, 
the infusion of charity. And, and so Paul will say in, in Romans chapter 2, he says, it's not the Jew who's one outwardly with the circumcision done in the flesh by the hands of men. He is a Jew who's a Jew inwardly in that circumcision that is done in the heart by the Spirit. And that is the man, the man whose heart has been changed, who keeps the dikaiomata tunamu, that's Greek for the righteous requirements of the law, or the spirit of the law, if you will, or, you know, the, the heart of the law, the essence of the matter. It's not these dietary laws and circumcision, it's love and justice and faithfulness that are poured into our hearts, infused into our hearts by the gift of the Spirit that comes through faith. And so, while the Mosaic Law is of no relevance to us in the Gentile Church anymore, this infusion of righteousness, this sharing in Christ's Spirit, this coming to have the mind of Christ, that's what becomes the key issue. You know, Paul writes in Philippians 2, having you this mind that was in Christ Jesus, who, though being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself humble and took on the likeness of a servant. So that's, that's the character of life that the Christian is to imitate through this gift of the Spirit. That's what brings salvation to us. That's what unites us to God, and that comes through faith. Yeah, okay, it, it's it's a beautiful it, it's beautiful the the way you tell it. But I I, I um, with all respect to Paul, I want to suggest something to you that part of the problem might be Paul himself in that he's hard to understand. He he doesn't write in a way that. Um, you you know you don't run into the problems of understanding reading Luke or even uh, you know say the first letter of Saint Peter or the second letter of Saint Peter you, you the it part of the problem with why we might have a, uh, we struggle over Paul today given e- even given all that you've said is that it's actually really hard to follow Paul. Well, yeah, because he's writing occasional texts and not systematic theology. And one of the major errors of the Reformation, I think, is to treat the Bible as if it's a coherent uh, textbook of theology, doctrine, or morality. You know, as if the purpose of Scripture was to give us a coherent account of the Christian life. That's not the point of Scripture. Nothing in the Bible says that about itself, and certainly the form of the thing belies the assumption. I mean, you pick up the Bible, and it's a disparate book of various genres cobbled together over thousands of years by different people uh, without a clear form of organization to it. I mean, one could treat it quite uh, ad hoc, if you if you will. And the Catholic position has always been that the Bible is more or less unintelligible apart from the structure of Catholic tradition that provides that coherence. Uh, and that's what we need to, in order to, to grasp Paul, is we—he we, we, really— uh, like it's you're you're not a fool if you open up uh, you know the letter to the Romans and go I don't know what he's doing you here. know let me <laughs> let me suggest let me suggest a hermeneutical key okay to Paul all right and and this sounds really obvious except that Luther flat out denied it okay here's what I think the hermeneutical key is to Paul read Jesus read Jesus, read the Gospels, really get your head around Christ's project. And what I mean by that is that the the pervasive question that comes up over and over and over again in Jesus is uh, that Jesus will 
throw something in your face, like the man with the withered hand in the synagogue, is it right to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to heal a man or to let him die? Um, you know, he, 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 why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? He's, he's constantly provoking the mores and traditions of his day um, in the interest of demonstrating the priority of human dignity. Right, and the constant criticism that Christ has with his contemporaries is, "You guys tithe mint, dill, and cumin. You follow the legal prescriptions of the Mosaic Code, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, like you know, love and faithfulness and justice and mercy." And over and over and over again, uh, in Jesus's teaching, we encounter this theme, right? Um, that uh, that that it is, you know. Is it right for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus says no. The Pharisees say, well, but the law says he can. And Jesus' answer is, well, yeah, but the law is wrong. The law was a concession to human weakness. The law was a, a, a relativization, if you will, of the, of the a diminution of the divine plan, which was that male and female fidelity, and that a husband would love his wife and not cast her aside. Hey, should we stone this woman? Call it adultery. Jesus says no. Well, but the law says we should stone her. Okay, we'll let you who has no sin cast the first stone. Jesus constantly relativizes the Mosaic law. He, he's he's always def- he's not denying it, but he's relativizing it and deflecting away from its harsher commandments in the interests of human dignity, the dignity of women, the dignity of the man with the withered hand, the dignity of the tax collector, the dignity of the poor. And everything about Jesus's project is to try to elicit that human sympathy that that recognition that there is a human being in front of me with dignity who deserves compassion regardless of their social status regardless of their of their cleanliness their ritual purity regardless of what mores or taboos they may have violated i have to treat every human being as a child of god that's the constant refrain in jesus's language and what paul does in my judgment all of paul's epistles is just a deepening exploration of that one dominical theme, that one theme that we learn from Jesus over and over and over again, is the very same theme in Paul, elaborated with a sophisticated uh, theological system. So where Jesus relativizes the law and says, yeah, we're not going to stone people, we're not going to cast away our wives, we're not going to refuse to heal people out of deference to the Sabbath, what Paul does, he says, yes, 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 here's how that works. Do you remember allegory? And then he shows you how to allegorize the texts of the Old Testament, right? Um, it, Jesus relativizes the ritual. Paul takes that ritual and now applies it as a symbol for the Christian life. I myself am being poured out as a drink offering, he can write. Yeah. He takes the ritual of the temple. He takes the ritual of a temple and now applies it immediately to the Christian life. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so there's this deep deep continuity between the writing of St. Paul and the message in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I say that's radical is that Luther's position was that the teaching of Jesus was impossible, that taken at face value, the teaching of Jesus should scare the you-know-what out of you because it's impossible to perform, and that Paul would come along with a kind of answer to the anxiety allegedly induced by taking Christ at his word. And so for Luther, he called this the contrast between the law and the gospel. Every imperative command he saw as law, gospel was this promise of free grace. And so Luther implicitly 
places a kind of barrier, a kind of division between the message of Paul and the straightforward teaching of Jesus. Now, where this gets really blown up is in modern dispensational Protestantism, fundamentalist Protestantism, that actually teaches that the Gospels are irrelevant to Christian life because they apply to a different dispensation. That's a radical form of the Lutheran thesis. My claim here, and this is in really accord with the best biblical scholarship, is that far from being far from saying two different things, Paul and Jesus are saying exactly the same thing, and yet Paul is just elaborating it with this theological apparatus that relies on a detailed teaching of the Spirit and, uh, and an allegorization of the Old Testament texts and then a spiritualization of Old Testament sacrifice. Oh, extra- okay, so— does that make sense to you? Am I, are you following me? No. Yes, I am. I, I am following you, and I've actually heard the the what uh, the what you've said about. I've heard people challenge us Catholics about the Gospels in just that way about, and I didn't know what it was referring to. Uh, but the, this idea that that there's a kind of uh, difference between the the what's taught in the Gospels or what Jesus himself teaches in the Gospels and what Paul says, that's a, a striking division. It's a, that, that, in a certain sense, that takes Jesus out of uh, the picture. Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> takes him out of Christianity. Yeah. So, Cy, I want to I ask you a provocative question. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Okay. Okay. How, how many times does Jesus tell us positively to believe some abstract theological doctrine, like a proposition about the nature of God or or salvation, and just say, you must believe this. How often does Jesus do that? I can't think of a—I mean, faith in himself as a person, belief in himself as a person, but I can't think of an abstract. I'm not thinking of any. Never. Jesus, Jesus never presents us with a creedal formula to which he demands assent. Right, never does that. Wow. Right? Yeah. In in fact, the the sort of positive affirmations of you must believe this, 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 and this, like it, it really is not part of Christ's message. And I'm not saying those things are unimportant. I'm just saying they don't you don't get them in the gospels. Right. What you find in Jesus' pedagogical method is something radically different. Like, what does Jesus do? Well, Mark chapter four tells us that Jesus never spoke a word to the people without speaking in parables. Everything he taught publicly was in the form of a parable. And that's not because parables are simple moral tales easy to understand. On the contrary, Matthew 13 tells us that Jesus spoke in parables precisely because they're hard to understand. He did not want to be easily understood. He wanted to be provocative. He wanted to be thought-provoking. He didn't want to be easily understood. How else did Jesus teach? Well, I already mentioned one way. He teached by, by sort of demonstrative provocation— Walk into a synagogue. Tell a man with a withered hand to stand up. Turn to the crowd and say, do I heal him or not? Tell me what to do. Now, did Jesus teach when he did that? Yes. But he didn't teach discursively. Like, okay, we're going to put the blackboard up. I'm going to show you the, the Baltimore Catechism. Right, he didn't right. teach like that. Yeah. What he did was he revealed to the people their own hardness of heart. He showed them that they were unwilling to make a stand in favor of human dignity by forcing them to give an answer, and they refused to do so. Text tells us that he was angered and sorrowful in his heart because of their hardness in heart. Jesus behaves, he, he, would, he would deliberately transgress social mores. He would eat with tax collectors and sinners. He would eat with prostitutes. He would spend time with lepers. Uh, he, he taught his disciples to eat with unwashed hands, right? All of these things that Christ did, 
were designed to provoke a response, to generate an insight, to unveil a truth about people's character. Why? Because he was trying to reorient them in the world, not, not to an abstract set of beliefs, to a belief system, but to the actual dignity of human beings and in imitation of the love of God who causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked. And so the teaching of Jesus is deeply, deeply, deeply oriented towards the reformation of character. And that's where this profound continuity with St. Paul comes in, right? The whole point of the gospel for Paul is that we should have the mind of Christ. Now, the whole ministry of Jesus is about trying to elicit, provoke, invite, tease, and cajole this transformation of consciousness so that we live these sacrificial lives in, in, in favor of the poor and the weak and the outcast. Paul says, that's the goal. The goal is to have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And then when, okay, so when you see Paul that way, you, you, you have a, 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 a firmer ground on which to understand, for example, his, the, the famous wedding <laughs> reading on love, um, the, uh, the constant kind of uh, calling people uh, away from bickering, any kind of um, uh, self-serving, any kind of uh, division. He he's a he's a strangely both provocative and at the same time erratic figure. Paul. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, to my judgment, I, I think the the Pauline ethic is pretty simple. I think it boils down to two things: it's treat others better than yourself. You know, live live charitably in community, reconciling differences. Yeah. And uh, and and don't sleep around. That's it. Huh? <laughs> I, I mean, that, I think that's the whole Pauline ethic. <laughs> Ah, isn't that something? Uh, well, uh, that, uh, nobody's listening to him on the "Don't Sleep Around" one nowadays. Uh, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but hey, that's... we're not we're not listening to him on the "Get Along" part either. <laughs> I think that's. Right. I mean, we're we're yeah, hopelessly I... right. hopelessly ideologically divided, yeah. and even within the church, I mean, we're at each other's throats, hammer and tongs. Like that... we are totally not obeying this this exhortation from the apostle. That's what I was thinking. I like outside, and this is a, a dumb generalization, but when you said it, it made me think, well, outside the church, the sleeping around one doesn't go, but inside the church, we just won't get along with one another. So in in neither place is, is, is he being honored by being followed, but uh, that's probably true in, I mean, in, in, in large part, that's why Paul is teaching these things is because they are so uh, difficult for the human person to persevere in that we we give up constantly on uh, we think the, uh, the we're past oh I, I'm past being at peace with that person or um, we give in to, to sexual temptations or whatever the temptations are we're we're weak frail things I I suppose that's why Paul is teaching these things so I I think Paul and Jesus's teaching is so relevant today because at least the way I read Christ. For, for, for Christ, the big issue is that cultural mores, religious expectations, the traditions of my fathers, are a barrier to me actually recognizing the dignity of my neighbor, right? And that con- Jesus constantly critiques that. And Paul similarly identifies ideological and political factionalism as a major obstacle to unity in the church and in the world. 
and that's why Paul can write in First Corinthians. You know, you one guy says I follow Peter, one says I follow Paul, one says I follow Apollos. He says that kind of factionalism in the church, and we might add in society, is totally unacceptable. So whether it's your whether it's your religious ideology, which is what Jesus critiques, you know, Paul too, or your political ideology, or or whatever it might be, uh, you know, we it's so tempting to think that the way I'm going to spread the gospel or do good in the world is I'm going to bring my massive wisdom to bear and tell everybody else what they should believe and do. That's how I'm going to save the world, right? And that's, that's I think, what Jesus and Paul critique. Rather, charity, genuine love for another human being, will transgress boundaries, right? And I'll put myself out in ways that make me uncomfortable and that maybe my group and my set don't approve of. And that's what Jesus did. Yes. And uh, and we're just as ideologically divided as we ever have been. So let me tell you one thing, and then we're probably going to run out of time soon. But there is a uh, there's a psychologist named like uh, Keith Stanovich who wrote a book called "The Bias That Divides Us." Right? My side bias, I think, is the title of the book. The bias that divides us, and it's about this pervasive human tendency that we all have to consider people in my group to be the holy, the righteous, the good, the rich, the smart, the wonderful. And you guys over there on the other side are bad, all right? And there's a couple things that come out in there that's really interesting. One of them is Stanovich recounts an experiment, a social science experiment. And here's the experiment. You take a, you take a room of subjects, okay, and you, you show them a video. And here's the video. The video is, an, is a political protest where the protesters are kind of roughed up by the police. And here's the trick in the experiment. You tell the audience, you tell your subjects, you tell one group, these are pro-life protesters that are being beat up by the cops. You tell the other group, these are guys that are protesting the military's ban on gays in the military. And they're being beat up by the cops. So this, the, the, the video itself does not indicate who's getting roughed up by the cops. One group you tell these are pro-life protesters, one group you tell these are pro-gay protesters. Then you ask the question, were the police fair in their use of force? Was this justifiable force of the protesters? Here's the really interesting conclusion. Political conservatives will say the police were absolutely fair if they believe the protesters were liberals. But if they believe the protesters were conservatives, they'd say, oh, the police were totally not fair. Right. You get the opposite result right. from the liberals. If you ask a liberal with a, with a police fair, oh, yeah, they're absolutely fair if they're beating up on pro-life people, absolutely unfair if beating up on you know, the pro-gays and the military people. But the, the circumstance, what, I mean, it was the same scene shown to both groups. All that goes to show is, like, I don't care if you're, if you're a conservative or a, or, or a liberal. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, whatever. We all have this bias. Jonathan Haidt, I believe, in his book, The Righteous Mind, uh, cites a similar experiment where you can take grammar school kids. Cy, you probably did this growing up. I did this growing up. You ever play flag football and the coach says, okay, half of you guys take your shirts off. You guys are the skins. You guys are the shirts. Right, you divide yeah. the team up into the shirts and the skins. You, you can take some completely arbitrary scheme like that, divide a group of kids into two groups, have them compete against one another. And the, 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 the group assignments are totally random totally random. And and the teams will begin to coalesce into a tribal identity. And and they are more likely to ascribe evil character and low intelligence to the other group. 
Isn't that something? And uh, there's like there's zero statistical difference between the groups. Right. The right. only difference is I was randomly assigned to blue versus red. And uh, so now I think all red people are bad. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's it's deeply woven, it's ingrained into the fabric of our DNA to do this. And that and this uh, this uh temptation or this I, I don't even know if it's a temptation or what it is. Uh this is what Paul is uh, well well first of all Paul as a disciple of Jesus as a follower of Jesus who who did this perfectly Paul in in his way apostolically is trying to convince people that the spirit of God has the power to liberate you from this or, or to liberate us from this yes and and for Paul like the tribal division of his day that he's concerned with is Jew and Gentile that, yeah. That's the division. Gotcha. And, right. and the model of reconciliation is the self-immolation of Jesus. Like Christ was willing to be crucified and killed to serve those that he would otherwise have been at enmity with. And, uh, you know, I mean, and this is what inspired Martin Luther King Jr. in the Civil Rights Movement, was that he would he would offer himself— and the lives of his community in a nonviolent protest in the hopes of loving their opponents into treating them charitably. You know, I mean, that's, right. that's the spirit of the gospel. Yes, and it's the spirit, uh, not the word, that, that saves us. It's that spirit that has the power to save. Um, the, uh, I really appreciate this time. Uh, do you do you have a sense? I'll just ask you this before I have to let you go. Do you have a sense that Catholics and Protestants can do this? That that, that there's a that that we can because certainly there are you know there's important theological differences and all that, but it's also true that we're two different teams now in a way. And so, by the grace of God, are, are do you see signs that maybe even in the interpretation of Paul? We're moving we away from the team sport and moving more towards that that unified, irenic, peaceful community that Paul wanted. So you know what brought me to the Catholic Church was Protestant scholarship on Paul, among other things. Right, I I oh. I began to question the Protestant interpretation of Paul that I'd grown up with, and when I turned to biblical scholarship to really clarify my understanding. I found that the best biblical scholarship on Paul in the 20th century by Protestants had come to the conclusion that Luther was wrong, that Luther had misread Paul. And so that was a it was a whole movement called the New Perspectives on Paul, mostly Protestant scholars, now some Jewish ones too, that had uh, that opened my eyes to a different way of reading the apostle, and that led me, you know, to the Catholic Church. Most Catholics and most Protestants are not reading academic works on Paul. Right. Right. And yeah. and uh, you know and the divisions in their own families are much more visceral than that. You know, I, I have a friend whose um, college roommate became a uh, a missionary. He became a Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox of some kind, and became a missionary in Eastern Europe in a traditionally Orthodox country. And he was describing to my buddy. The uh, the sort of long seated antagonism that members of this Orthodox community had towards the Catholic Church, and his uh, his response was, "They just don't know why they hate Catholics so much, 
right? You know, it was oh, like yeah. it was it was a it was <laughs> it was such a visceral, like culturally inherited <laughs> tribalistic identity that like the right thing to do is to hate Catholics, you know? Yeah. And uh, and I think that's true in religious domain, but today what the social scientists tell us is that religious divisions today are nothing compared to the political ideological divisions. And it used to be, you know, the dating websites would tell you that religion was the deal breaker. You know, two people, if they could get along in everything, but they disagreed on religion, they wouldn't date, right? That's no longer the case. Religion is no longer the deal breaker in online dating. It's politics. Yeah. You know, it's game, uh, right. who'd you vote for? Who'd you vote for? And uh, and not just who you vote for, but, you know, how do you construe the various uh, divisive social issues of the day? And um, and uh, to my you know, to my way of thinking, there are a lot of voices, Christian and not, who are trying to call out this dynamic and say, look, this is going to destroy us. I mentioned one. Uh, uh, I think he's Jewish and I believe an atheist, Jonathan Haidt. Oh, yeah. um, who's uh, he's, a, he's politically liberal, but he is extremely attuned to the danger that we're the, of our republic basically ripping itself in half through ideological division. Um, you know, more on the right side, somebody like Jordan Peterson is always going on about ideology and the danger to civil. So people on the left and the right are both identifying this, uh, but I don't see that that awareness has actually affected the quality of civil discourse. No. And I certainly know individuals, I know people personally who will, you know, unfriend you on Facebook if you vote the wrong way or if you yep. say the wrong thing or hold the wrong political opinion. And and I don't fault one side or the other. I see this from Catholics. I see this from non-Catholics. I see it from conservatives. I see it from liberals. And um, and uh, I, I may a bit be a bit cynical about this, but I think that— it, the people who are willing to be crucified, you know, for love of their ideological enemies, uh, they're saints, right? Yes. And so they're all they're rare. I mean, right. this is not a new thing in human history, and uh, so I'm not looking for some sort of mass reconciliation. I, I think that the call is the one that's always been there, which is the universal call to holiness, the call for Catholics to take the charge and lead in charity. Not in doctrinaire moralistic self righteousness, but like Dr. King, the willingness to lay down their lives uh, and their pride and their ideologies and their you know and their need to be right uh, in order to show others that we genuinely care about you as a human being, regardless of what you think. And, and that sounds like exactly what St. Paul would have approved of. That sounds like the, Christ, the, the Christian message that St. Paul himself was uh, in letter after letter, and I'm sure in, in, in meeting after meeting all his life trying to convey. Uh, Dr. David Anders, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time with us. Thank you, Sai. I enjoyed it. Uh, as I said, I'm a big fan of Called to Communion with Dr. David Anders, and uh, among the uh, people I know, I've met a lot of people who go, I know, that show is really good. Well, uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, please do listen to it. Uh, thank you for listening to this uh, podcast. We appreciate that you do. If you want to communicate with us, just shoot us an email at focus at catholic.com. Focus at catholic.com is our website. If you'd like to support us financially, it costs a couple bucks to do this. You can do that by going to give catholic.com give catholic.com and uh if you if you would i'll ask you one, again before we go 
if you give us that five stars and maybe a few nice words, that helps to grow the podcast as well. And we like it. We think it's worth growing. If you do too, help us do that. Thank you very much for that. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. We'll see you next time, God willing, right here on Catholic Answers Focus. You know, you said that that we we got the don't sleep around part down inside the church. I'm not so sure. No, about that. I shouldn't. I, I, that's the first generalization <laughs> my mind went to. But as I was saying it, I was thinking the same thing. No, that's not right.